0: The seeds for uh, today's sermon and next week's meeting uh, come, both come from the Puritans. Um, now, what we've got planned for next Sunday, the 26th, uh, started with something I read about uh, a Puritan, John Owen. Owen, uh, Owen taught that Jesus is the Savior of the Old Testament saints. He's the, anybody gets saved, they get saved because Jesus uh, died and bore our sins. His righteousness... Is the righteousness that was attributed to Abraham when Abraham uh, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, and and uh, Jesus is the central figure of all of Scripture. I mean, it starts talking about him crushing the serpent's head, you know, and I mean all the way through, he's the he's the main person. So when he when Owen was emphasizing Jesus. Um, it raised questions for some people as to whether this diminishes or slights God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And Owen had an answer for this question. First of all, the Holy Spirit loves to testify to the glory of the Father and the Son. Um, sometimes people, I've heard people complain that the Holy Spirit doesn't get enough attention. But actually, the Holy Spirit's really not looking for attention. The Holy Spirit is constantly drawing attention to the goodness and glory of the Father and of the Son. And, uh, so, and then the Father delights in the Son and speaks from heaven to draw attention to him and, and to declare his pleasure in him. And Owen suggests that it's in our magnification of the Son that we'll become like the Father. In other words, to be godly is to love Jesus. The essence of godliness is, is love for the Father's beloved Son. And our increasing love for the Son will manifest in increasing praise and in more perfect obedience to Him. And We should be, we should be increasingly attentive to Jesus. We should declare the perfections of His character and of His works. This makes us more like the Father. Far from feeling slighted, The Father is delighted when we delight in the one in whom he delights. So as I thought about this, I I imagined a meeting in which we did nothing but sing songs about Jesus and declare the truth about Jesus, the wonders of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, the one who's the image of the invisible God and upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's the maker of all things. Nothing was made apart from him. Things like that. So I talked with Jerron about it, and, and we came up with this plan for Nick Sunday, which Jerron named, I love the name, we're calling it an exaltation of Jesus. So here's what, here's what and you know, we're going to sing songs. All the songs are about Jesus. I've got a, a list, you know. He's Jesus, the friend of sinners. Jesus, only Jesus. Jesus, we love you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Shine, Jesus, shine. I, My Jesus, I love thee. I mean, there, there's a lot of songs about him. So we can't sing them all, but we'll sing some of them. And then the other thing that we want to do is get lots of contributions from lots of people. Short contributions from the many. So in our meetings, you, you've seen it already happen today. People come up, they talk to the anchors, and then they speak to the church. They pray or read a scripture or share something. Well, we're hoping for a whole lot of that. Lots and lots of contributions in nice, small bites. No long sermons, lots of short declarations of the goodness of our Savior. You can quote scripture, you can quote lyrics from songs we no longer sing, you know, like old hymns that we don't sing here anymore, but you could still say. What I want to say is all hail the power of Jesus' name Let angels prostrate fall. You know, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. You know, isn't that good to hear? So that kind of stuff. And and brief testimonies would be great. Here's what he did for me. He he healed me. He saved me. You know, keep keep them short, but we want a lot of them. And then, you know, they're, they're like his various names. His names. He's got multiple names and they're all really good. His titles, various descriptions of him, um, several places where they you know actually I quoted some of those earlier about how he he's the exact representation of the divine nature i mean that's there's a whole bunch of stuff around that, several places i mean the the people who wrote the New Testament said a lot about Jesus, but then there are also what the Old Testament prophets said about him, starting with the seed of the woman crushing this serpent's head all the way to Revelation 21, where he's the lamp that is the light for the city of God, you know. So, so, uh, it, it's high, high participation and it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus next week. How's that sound? Um, because we're going to be singing a whole lot and making a lot of noise, we're not going to have our, our classes for the two older groups. We'll still have a toddler nursery. The kids who are uh, in classes right now will be with us, uh, and they may have something to say too about uh, their love for Jesus. So um, that's next week, the following weekend. John and, and uh, Linda Lanferman will be here, as as you just heard, and they'll be doing that marriage seminar. And Mary and I have really benefited from being in other contexts where John and Linda talked about marriage. They're 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 wise and they're very open and honest and have just been tremendously helpful over the years to many people in talking about marriage. So I would encourage you to uh, sign up for that if you have not done so. Uh, so that's that's on the, on the second. And then on the third, John will preach, and, and I'm looking forward to that too. We've got rich history. Um, in years past, John made massive investments in the church here and helped us through all sorts of things. And so uh, I'm really glad to have him back. Among us uh, here in a couple weeks. Um, and then uh, after that, on the 10th, Geron is going to kick off a new series from the last book of the Bible, the Revelation to John, and that's going to be fun too. So that's what you have to look forward to. I think it's a pretty exciting menu. It should make you want to come to church. So uh, let's stand for the reading of the scriptures. <clears throat> About 700 years before the birth of Christ, the spirit of prophecy came upon Isaiah. Isaiah was a well-educated man, had a good vocabulary and some literary skill. He had a government job in the capital in Jerusalem. And God gave Isaiah a series of revelations about the promised Savior of the people of God. Not only did he give him revelations, Isaiah spoke God's words about that coming Savior. And our text today, Isaiah tells us well in advance what God says about the one that we know as Jesus. So, so let's look at the text. It's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, he says, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the islands, or the coastlands, or the far-off lands, places like this, like us separated by both geography and time, will wait for his law or will delight in his instruction. So he's not going to be discouraged, and he brings to us a word of profound encouragement. And so we ask, Lord, that we would receive the encouragement that you intend for us in this passage. Open it up to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You could be seated. In December of last year, I I bought a series of audio lectures on the history of the English Reformation. They're by Michael Reeves, who's one of my favorite authors. Altogether, it was like about five hours of of lectures. And um, as I listened to them, I listened over and over again, multiple times over about six months. I listened initially because I was learning stuff, and I just kept learning things that I was interested to learn. And then later, after, later on, I, I just started listening to them as I was going to, to bed because I, I wanted to go to sleep happy. And there was so much good news in these things that I was, made me sleep happy. I particularly enjoyed learning uh, about the Puritans. They were an important part of the Reformation in England starting about 500 years ago. Puritan was a, a, a mocking term used by people who thought they were taking their religion too seriously but it's stuck. Currently, my, my favorite Puritan is a guy I want to introduce you to. His name is Richard Sibbs. He lived 400 years ago. Here's his portrait. There he is, Richard Sibbs, Anglican, Puritan, theologian, preacher, author. I really like this guy. If you've seen portraits of other people from this time period, you will notice that they usually are looking pretty grim. It was not really considered appropriate to smile, but Sibs is doing so uh, because he is a particularly cheerful and optimistic Puritan. And um, he he authored a book based on our text today called The Bruised Read, and it's been bringing encouragement to people for a very long time. There's a, a free service called LibriVox where volunteers read books that are in the public domain. So I got the app, and I found the bruised reed there, and I just started listening to it. For months, I listened to it over and over again. And then I bought the book, but I kept listening to it. And uh, uh, the week before last, I had to take a long trip, but it was three hours' drive one way in the morning and three hours' drive on the way back. And I listened to it the whole time and uh, really was so refreshed by it and encouraged. And I just thought, well, maybe you guys need some encouragement too. And so I'm, I'm going to uh, interpret and apply the words of Isaiah today about our Savior. and I'm going to credit Richard Sibbs for opening up this text for me. I'll be quoting him periodically as we go. So let's get started. The first thing we noted was that Isaiah, he tells us first of all about the calling of Christ. And then he tells us how the Christ will carry out his calling, his manner of service, how he's going to go about doing what he was assigned to do. And um, so, first his calling, and his calling was to be a servant. Behold my servant. Here's what Sibs says about that. He says, Christ was God's servant in the greatest piece of service that ever was. <laughs> he was a chosen and choice servant who did and suffered all by the commission from the Father. In this we may see the sweet love of God to us in that he counts the work of our salvation by Christ his greatest service and that he will put his only beloved son to that service. So this is, this is the, this is the good news. This is gospel news here about who the Christ, uh, anticipated in advance, what he was going to be, what he would do. And so it's, it's appropriate that 42.1 uh 42 1 begins with the word behold because he's basically saying, look, look at this one. Look at who I'm sending to take care of things. Uh, look at him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Uh, fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of faith. He he's he's worth paying a lot of attention to. I mean, we can't we can never devote too much attention to Jesus the Christ so that's that's the uh, he draws attention to him and then he tells us he's going to tell us how he goes about his his service and to do that i want to look at a new testament passage isaiah's words were confirmed as being fulfilled by uh, one of jesus' disciples matthew in chapter 12 of his gospel let's let's look at that it says that jesus withdrew Many people followed him and he healed them all and he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to the victory, and in his name the nations will hope. The thing that I wanted to point out here is that Jesus told people not to talk about him, and that's what Matthew, that's what made Matthew think about this prophecy in Isaiah. Do you follow that? Jesus told people not to talk about him. Did you know that Jesus ever told people not to talk about him? He did. It's true. Now, just before he went back to heaven, he told his disciples that they should tell everybody about him. But here's what here's the point that Matthew is making. In, in his incarnation, Jesus comes humbly and quietly, and he, re, he, he does not uh, require a public uh, relations firm, he seeks no promotion of his name or his brand. As Isaiah predicted, Jesus is not contentious and he's not loud. That's, that's what Matthew's telling us. And, uh, and then in verse 20 here, which I think we was just up. It was there just a second ago. In verse 20, he tells us that the servant will be tender with bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Now, these are two metaphors... For weak or damaged or vulnerable people. Okay, so and more particularly, they're about people who are not only frail or weak or damaged, but who know that they are, who 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 know that they're weak and and faulty and lacking. So we're going to look at these uh, in order. First, the bruised reed. First of all, you notice that we're we're compared. That's us. We're compared to reeds, not to trees. We're compa- actually whenever. Whenever we are described, whenever a metaphor is applied to us, it's always of something that's weak, like sheep, sheep or reeds, you know, and um, and vulnerable things, bruised reeds, and then not just bruised, but you know, they're like they're they're not just weak, they're damaged, not broken off, but but pretty damaged. So. And what we're what we're seeing here, you know, is that we don't we actually don't have much to commend ourselves to God. We're not particularly useful to him in our natural state and and that we're better off when we know it. We're, we're blessed. Jesus specifically blessed us when we're poor in spirit, which basically means when we we're approved, when we acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. So. When the, when the text says that the servant won't break the bruised reed, it actually says less than could be said about Jesus. So to state it in positive terms, I mean, he won't do this, that's a negative, but to state it in positive terms, Jesus declares and demonstrates his love for the bruised and the broken. Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. Jesus said... Come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus was criticized more than once for spending too much time with messed up sinners and marginalized people. Jesus was deeply moved. One time, Jesus looked out at a whole crowd of people who'd gathered around him, and he said, It says in the Bible that he was moved deeply in his spirit because he recognized them as being like sheep without a shepherd, which means leaderless, unprotected, weak, vulnerable. And he was moved by that, that reality about the state of humanity. Jesus Jesus never turned away anybody who sought him out. Jesus shed tears for those who shed his blood. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that he suffered when tempted, so that he could better comfort and support those who are tempted. Are you thankful for that? I mean, he knows what it's like. He suffered so that he could be a better help to you in your own struggles and difficulties. How good of him. He currently is in heaven making intercession for weak Christians. That's good news. That is such good news. Jesus had a particular interest in ordinary people and weak people and people with problems and messed up people. People like us. People like us. Jesus Jesus is the most tender-hearted human that ever lived. He's the embodiment of mercy. Here's a a quote from Sivs. He says, Surgeons will lance and cut but not dismember a mother who has a sick and self-willed child will not therefore cast it away. And shall there be more mercy in the stream than in the spring? Shall we think there's more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the affection of mercy in us? Isn't that good? He's always going to be better than us at everything. He's the source of all that's good. source of all that's good. And then, and then and this is important about bruised reeds. God may, for a variety of reasons, sometimes bruise us Himself. And I'll just mention some of the reasons why He does that. First of all, we need bruising because reeds need to know that they are reeds and not oaks. And God may allow us to experience temptations and troubles and pains just to show us how frail we are. And, And disciplines expose our weakness so that we might know that we're only alive at all by the mercy of God. And when our weakness is exposed through failure, the gospel becomes very good news for us. If you have been living what you regard to be a pretty good moral life for a few weeks and can't remember any of your sins, you can begin to feel pretty happy about yourself. But when... (laughs) When your failure is exposed, when your, when your weakness is exposed through failure, the gospel, it becomes really good news. You're really, really happy to abandon whatever fig leaves you've come up with and hide yourself in Christ, who is your righteousness. So, so that's another way, the reason God may bruise us. I was talking through this about God bruising us with some others in the office and Lynn Fleshman, shared a quotation that she'd found recently from another uh, long-ago Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. Here's what he said. Rutherford said, Yea, when Christ in love giveth a blow, it doth a soul good, and it is a kind of comfort and joy to it to get a cuff with the lovely, sweet, and soft hand of Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> can you can you relate to that? Isn't that good? I want to like read it again. <laughs> when Christ in love giveth a blow, it does us soul good. It's a it's a kind of comfort and a joy to it to get a cuff with the lovely, sweet and soft hand of Jesus. When mature disciples get bruised, it might help the younger ones be less discouraged by their weakness. That's another uh, value. Peter told Jesus, Hey, if everybody forsakes you, I will not. And a few hours later, he was bruised and weeping over his failure. And Jesus didn't give up on him. Jesus restored him and told him to care for his sheep. And this should encourage us. This should, this should bring us encouragement. Peter was one of the disciples. He messed up really bad. Doesn't that bring you a little bit of comfort? Sibs again writes, he says here, uh The people of God cannot be without these examples. The heroic deeds of those great worthies do not comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do, and I find that to be true of me. I mean one of the things that I may talk about him again later, but one of the things that comforts me when 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 i 'm feeling like i have messed up and i 'm not very good i 'm not a very good christian and then i I think about Guys like David, who God called a man after His own heart, and that guy did some awful stuff. You know, I mean, he out me in in significant ways. You know, and and yet God, God never like He He said, "I'm I'm you're gonna your descendants gonna." He made a covenant with him, and He never said, "Oh, forget about that." <laughs> he never He never abandoned him. I mean, these these the the failures of, of our heroes. Really do bring comfort to us. They they show us how how determined God is to stick with His people. So I like this one too. This next quote from him, which is along the same lines, he says, "Ungodly spirits, ignorant of God's ways in bringing His children to heaven, censure broken-hearted Christians as miserable persons." whereas God is doing a gracious, good work with them. It's no easy matter to bring a man from nature to grace and from grace to glory, so unyielding and intractable are our hearts. We really do need the discipline of the Lord. Good parents discipline their children, and our Father kindly and graciously disciplines us. But then then the second of the two metaphors, the smoldering wick, When the wick of a lamp or a candle burns brightly, there's little or no smoke. But when the oil or the wax fueling the fire gets low, the the wick will smolder. Now when it's smoldering, there might be a little light and there will be offensive smoke. So this is another metaphor describing our weakness, our frail and vulnerability. And it's specifically suggesting that there's this kind of mixture in us, that even in our goodness, there is weakness. And sometimes our goodness isn't very bright. Even in our faith, there is unbelief. I mean, none of you have ever, I'm pretty sure, none of us have ever had as much faith as Jesus wishes we did. I'm pretty sure that's true. Um, Isaiah and Matthew say, are telling us in this metaphor, that when you're low on grace and you're not producing much light, but are producing smoke and look like you're about to glow out, and feel like you're clothed to spiritual death, Jesus won't quench you. Is that good news? That's very encouraging. When this little light of mine isn't shining very brightly and the grace of God at work in me appears low and clouded by doubts, Jesus comes not to finish me off or to set me aside, but to revive me. He will refuel and breathe life into what seems weak, what looks like it's about to go out. Jesus does not despise your weakness. I mean, on the the contrary, he tends to be drawn to the weak. In Mark 9, a man uh, brings his demon-oppressed son to Jesus. The boy is profoundly troubled. He recurrently throws himself into fires or into rivers, and the dad's desperate, and he says to Jesus, If you you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. So, of course, the kid didn't get healed. Oh, wait, no, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. The father said, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, see, like, he, there's this recognition. Yeah, I, I do believe, but I, I'm, I'm clearly, there's like a, a gap in my faith here. And, and Jesus heals him, heals the boy, and um, gave him what he asked for. Jesus routinely did what people had enough faith to ask him to do, over and over again. If Jesus only accepted followers with perfect faith, he wouldn't have any disciples at all. He, he doesn't speak harshly. You know, Thomas doubted the account that he'd heard of the resurrection. And then when Jesus met up with him, he didn't scold him. He said, hey, Thomas, come over here. Put your hand in this. Put your hand in my side. I the The... All of the disciples of Jesus abandoned him in his hour of need. He met up with them after the resurrection. He didn't even bother to scold them. This is encouraging to me. But sincere Christians are frequently discouraged about their spiritual condition. I mean, I have been, and not too long ago. (laughs) We, We find ourselves discouraged about our our state or our lack of progress or our recurring failures. And I think it's important to just take a minute and, and, and ask, where, where do these, where does discouragement come from? Where do discouragements come from? Well, let me tell you. First of all, they do not come from your father. Because Psalm 103, 13 and 14 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows what you're made of. He knows your frailty. He knows you're human. And He doesn't despise your weakness. But also, um, when these discouragements come, they're not coming from Christ because Christ will not quench the smoldering wick. And in the, the you know in the eleventh chapter of Hebrews, there's this list of people of faith. It's described as a cloud of witnesses. And in this group, we see Rahab, who was a harlot, and um, Gideon and Samson. They're they're like grouped in with Abraham, who's supposed to be like the the, the, the big faith guy in the Old Testament, you know. And, but Gideon and Samson, those guys both had. I mean, Samson wasn't. He was real. He was. He was real strong, but he wasn't very wise or godly. And Gideon made some massive mistakes. And they're in this list of people who God approves because of their, of their faith. Um, and then there's another guy that's listed. Jephthah is listed there just before David. And if you don't know Jephthah's story, you, it's, it's not pretty, and he's on this list right before David. But then, as I mentioned, David David had his issues too. I mean, he sinned big before the thing, before he killed Bathsheba's husband. Before, I mean, before all of that, he'd already made some pretty big mistakes. And I am comforted by this, you know, that David did, because God never renounced his covenant and didn't abandon him. And and I got one more quote from sibs I, I stuck in here. He says uh, he says oh man. Yeah, there it is. You have heard of the patience of Job, says James. We have heard of his impatience too, but it pleased God mercifully to overlook that. <laughs> okay. I think I might have got those out of order. So anyway, I love that one though. I'm glad you laughed. I laugh every time I read it. Isn't that kind of God? You, you know, it, there's like what He decides to record. He records these people of having great faith, but He doesn't tell you about all the stupid things they did. He says, "Oh, Job, such a such an example of faith." He doesn't tell you of, of uh, patience. He doesn't tell you about all the times Job was complaining. <laughs> so, I just think the Lord is so merciful and kind toward those who are His. So discouragements don't come from the Holy Spirit either because the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, Romans 8.26. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter in John 14.16. If he convicts of sin and so humbles us, it is in order that he might comfort us. And so discouragements must come from ourselves or from our adversary, the devil. So that's what I wanted to share with you, and I hope you're encouraged by it, that God doesn't despise your weakness, that he knows that you're frail, he knows you're human, and He he's actually drawn to people who are weak and have problems and know that they don't have what it takes. So that's wonderfully good news for us. So the last thing that we want to do is this morning is to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. This was when Jesus met with his disciples the night before he was betrayed to celebrate the Passover, he um, he took the bread and he said, "This is my, this has always been about me. This Passover thing's always been about me. This bread that we eat every year for the last twelve hundred years is my body. This cup that we've been drinking on Passover, this is about me. It's my blood. Eat and drink this and remember me. Keep doing this." Till I come back. And um that's what he told us to do. And so we we do it, and it, we 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 look back with gratitude at what was accomplished for us. And um, we want to take some time to do that. In 1 in, in Corinthians, Paul tells, tells the Corinthians that um before we approach the table, we should examine ourselves, so we should take some time to do that. You could start now. You could start examining yourself a little bit. The last few days, your conversations, your thought life, your interactions with other people. But let me warn you, uh, careful self-examination can sometimes produce discouragement. So here's what I would say you do, you know, repent of any sin that comes to mind but don't disqualify yourself from communing with Jesus because Jesus forgives sins. Sometimes people say you've got to forgive yourself, but the Bible never says that. It teaches us to receive forgiveness and then to extend forgiveness. Forgiving yourself is kind of like writing yourself a million-dollar check on an overdrawn account. What you need to do is accept the forgiveness of the one who can forgive sins. And thank Him for it. And thank Him for paying the price for your sin. And remember this. Your confession will never be as thorough as it ought to be because you don't even really know yourself that well. After your most thorough confession, you will still have faults you have not yet recognized. But Jesus knows your frame. And He knows your weakness. And He's still willing to call you His own. And He's he's happy to see your you in his house, and he wants to welcome you to his table. It's reminded me of this story in Second Chronicles 30. The nation had, for a long time, ignored the celebration of the Passover, and in this passage, Hezekiah was restoring the Passover celebration. And here's what happened. A majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate the Passover, otherwise than prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God the Lord and the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people.